Hello, I'm with Maxine Sheets Johnstone. Hi, Maxine. Hi, Serge. So you talk a lot about the primacy of movement, and uh, one phrase you have used is, we come into the world moving. Um, in a way, this phrase also applies to your career, as uh, you started being a dancer before being a philosopher. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more about this career? Well, it's very true. In my first life, I was a dancer. I was a dancer, choreographer, professor of dance, dance scholar. And in my studies at the University of Wisconsin, where I got my doctorate in, in dance and philosophy, I found myself at odds with what I called the party line, which was a definition of movement and dance as a force in time and space. The reason it didn't agree with me was because if I thought about it at all, I thought, well, airplanes and the wind are forces in time and space, and that's not getting us anywhere near hmm. animate movement and, and dance. So I was a, a kind of heretic, and uh, I got off in very deeply into phenomenology, which is a way of uh, very... A uh, rigorous way of methodically rigorous way of examining experience, and um, that work eventually was the basis of my my uh, doctorate, which was the phenomena a book called the Phenomenology of Dance. And what I one of the prime things that I showed in there was that movement is not a force in time and space, but that movement creates its own time, space, and force, which is what gives it its, gives it its particular qualitative dynamics. And those qualitative dynamics are apparent in the way we see people walk and recognize their walk, the way they laugh, the way they, they do whatever they do. Uh, and although we pay less attention to ourselves and our own um, kinesthetic dynamics, they are there also in our own movement. So it pertains to the everyday as well as to dance it's a it's it's really recognizing the the um, the essential features of movement itself yeah. in terms of its qualitative dynamics yeah so so that's uh, certainly a bridge a common point uh, uh, between your work and that of uh, body oriented psychotherapists is uh, uh, recognizing movement and its own language. And um, I think you say in some place that there is um, you know, something like movement is our mother tongue. Uh, do you want to say more about that? Yes. Well, in the primacy of movement, there's a chapter called um, Learning to Move Oneself. And in that chapter, I, I talk about the... Uh, the fact that we come into the world moving, that we're precisely not stillborn, and that um, our conception of infants as pre-linguistic is really off the mark because infants aren't pre-linguistic. Language is post-kinetic. So I want to I want to I want to stay with that, you know, just in a way that uh, you know 
first to what you were saying before that uh, infants are not stillborn which is a very provocative use of words uh, and um, uh, you know how movement was there and that the point is uh, that language is post kinetic so do you want to say more about that well that is to say that movement is our mother tongue that's the <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the 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 way in which we we learn our own bodies we learn to move ourselves we learn the world the surrounding world in which we live we explore the world in movement um and that's um that's the way we understand things uh and come to know them um people like uh the psychologist uh Jerome Bruner talked about the the focus of infants and young children on agentivity, on agent and action, agent and action. He didn't get into movement as our mother tongue, but that's that's the uh, certainly the underlying thesis of of his um, observations. Yeah, not thesis, but the uh, the underlying conclusion from his observations, I should say. Yeah. So, from that perspective, too, um, in other words, uh, most people don't pay any attention to movement. It's immediately categorized as behavior, or it's immediately categorized as action, some kind of action. Well, you're eating, or you're sleeping, or you're laughing, or you're smiling, or you're whatever it is. But the the actual movement dynamics, the qualitative dynamics of of our existence are swallowed up when we when we package them in those behavioral or action terms. Right. So we don't pay attention to the qualitative dynamics. So we make a, an artificial distinction between movement and thinking when in fact um, uh, one is thinking in movement or movement and thinking uh, are related. Yes, very, very much so, because in the same chapter in on learning to move oneself, um, I talked about the fact that movement forms the eye that moves before the eye. I mean, not the not the visual eye, but mm-hmm. but the the eye eye. The self. <laughs> so, but, yeah, the movement forms the eye that moves before the eye that moves forms movement. In other words, an infant makes incoherent reaching gestures, it it kicks its legs, it does all kinds of things just in a in a spontaneous way and discovers its own body and bodily possibilities, its movement possibilities in the course of move, moving. And all of that movement comes into forming the self that evolves and develops before and when I say that before the eye that moves forms movement that pertains precisely to becoming aware, thoughtful, cognitive of the world about one as well as oneself. So thinking and movement allow, allows the developing infant and young child to move about effectively, efficiently, and, and reasonably in the mm-hmm. world. Yeah, yeah. So that is uh, similar in a way to some of the work you've done in uh, uh, talking about the roots of thinking. Yes, very, very much so. Um, I had, uh, maybe I should just mention this on the side because it's just been a great influence on my work and writings and everything that I've I've done is that I went back to um, the University of Wisconsin 
at Madison for a second doctorate in evolutionary biology. It's incomplete, but I I wanted to ground my my um, whatever I did in the realities of of evolutionary uh, thought as well as ontogenetical thought and as well as phenomenology. In other words, bringing all of these strands of our lives together in some kind of meaningful way. So in the roots of thinking, I was very much concerned with uh, actually with paleoanthropological case studies. One of them had to do with uh, taking up the very popular uh, notion in anthropological circles uh, or paleoanthropological circles that um, stone tools replaced teeth. Uh-huh. It was kind of like a truism, and nobody explored or uh, specified how that happened. I mean, how would that happen? And um, in a very detailed analysis in one of those chapters, I showed how um, the core tools and the flake tools, which were the original tools of, of early hominids, uh, are coincident with the morphology of our teeth in terms of our molars and our incisors, which have very, very different structures, and our what I call our began calling our tactile kinesthetic body is the basis for the discovery about the difference between our molars and our incisors because if you run your tongue across the dental arcade starting from your molars and up across your um, uh, incisors and onto the other side you, you feel a very definitive change in the in the structure in the spatial um, a form of the teeth, the the, the molars being very uh, having uh, protruding edges that are that are um, sharp but not but not evenly so, which is the way core tools are, and then incisors which are uh, thin and sharp and uh, single edged and um, are are like the the uh, flight tools that were were. Um, were first formed and used. So um, there, there's, and what I so did that chapter. If I could just say this last thing, sure. it's, it's that analogical thinking grounds basic fundamental human concepts. Analogical in the sense of coming from the body. Analogical thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So, um, it's the experience of having teeth, and specifically of noticing the difference between incisors and molars, um, that leads people to actually recognize in nature. Uh, in stones, the possibility of either finding stones that are similar or shaping them that way, and that's yeah. at a very, very basic level, uh, you know, analogical thinking. That's right. Yes, and making something. In other words, they're aware of what molars their molars do, which is grind things to pieces. Their incisors bite things, rip them, uh, tear them. They function in different ways, precisely in the way that core tools and flake tools differ in terms of what they can do. Mm-hmm. There's a parallel there. Right. Um, 
And so, and we infer um, from this that our ancestors did not get to this point from drawing diagrams or studying laws of physics or, uh, you know, abstract thinking, but basically reasoned from, um, you know, the, the, that, that experienced a kinesthetic, tactile experience of the teeth and then recognizing the same in another object. So we're talking about, you know, the uh, analogy functioning as opposed to an intellectual, you know, more layered form of reasoning that would come later. Yes, yes, but, uh, right, yes, but the, the, the body really functions in this beginning way as a semantic template for for making one's way in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, certainly thinking evolves in a lot of different directions, but in a very fundamental sense, in terms of fundamental human concepts uh, come from bodily experience. Yes. So that's a very important point of how you know, uh, these fundamental concepts come from bodily experience. So how do you, um, you know, do you see maybe all of the uh, present-day brain science going into um, explaining everything in terms of circuitry compared to what you're talking about? (laughs) Well, I have a very difficult time with... Uh, that kind of thing. It reminds me of uh, Alison Gopnik's uh, philosophical baby book, um, which is really cerebralizing infancy by way of experimental programs and imaging techniques and computer analogies rather than in the flesh observations of infant life, such as those of Daniel Stern and other psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh-huh. Um, um, I think... Uh, the philosophical baby is 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 a forgery in this in the sense of not giving us um, the life dynamics of a of an infant growing up or of a young children growing up. I think experimental research has a definite place in psychology and neuroscience certainly does also. But I think it's it's uh, kind of run away with itself. Um, and it's to the point now it's as if the brain uh, the brain is like the oracle at Delphi it's the <laughs> place to which all all neuroscientists and cognitive scientists and philosophers go to to uh, have all of their questions answered <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and uh, I think it's the wrong route and my sense is that uh, um Quite simply, I I would say that until a kinetic neuroscience comes prominently to the fore, I mean, an investigative science that scrutinizes movement and comes to understand it as something other than simply a motor phenomenon, that no no veritable cognitive science can achieve its vaunted aim, which is to explain in terms of brain events, neuronal happenings, how we we come to know what we know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in a way, what's uh, more fascinating is the part that's not explained in there. Yes, exactly, because so long as you're talking about motor phenomenon, uh, I mean, people uh, have talked about sensory motor subjectivity, sensory motor subjectivity. Well, motors don't have friends and they don't have 
they don't feel hunger pangs and they don't mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't do a lot of things that living animals, humans included, do. Um, the the term motor, I think, is is uh, is terribly unfortunate. It's uh, to my mind uh, very much like the term embodied, which people use as a um, as a cover for everything that they don't want to explore, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds pretty critical. But I I really do think that um, the term embodied uh, I I have written about it as as a lexical band-aid that is covering over uh, um, a 350-plus-year-old wound Uh still superating, and it's not going to be healed by this lexical band-aid of embodiment. Um, I might mention in this context that the publishers of the Primacy of Movement uh, want to come out with a second edition of the book. It was published in 1999. And I've agreed to do this, and I've agreed to write a uh, an additional chapter for the book. And I have um, titled it, um, tentatively anyway, uh, Embodied Ma, this, this, this uh, additional chapter, which is not going to be some minimal thing, but really talking about cognitive neuroscience, mm-hmm. uh, present day, what's gone on in the 10 years since the book was published. But the chapter is going to be titled "Embodied Minds or Mindful Bodies." And that's a that's a beautiful distinction. So that would, could we talk more about that? Mindful bodies versus embodied minds. Yes, uh, that resonates. Mindful bodies uh, are the way in which we come into the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's that ties in with the fact that movement is our mother tongue that we are already aware, cognizant of, of, of the world about us and of our own, um, of our own bodies. One of the, the really astounding experiments that Daniel Stern, the psychiatrist, uh, infant psychiatrist, clinical psychologist Daniel Stern, performed and it's written, he wrote about it in the interpersonal world of the infant, is the one that um, he and others did on Siamese twins. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember. No, just that. say a little anyway, bit more, yeah. They were, uh, before, before they were, uh, the operation which, which separated them, they did an experiment by which they, uh, 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 tried pulling out the thumb of the infant's, um, the infant's own thumb from its mouth and then its Siamese twins' thumb from its mouth. Mm-hmm. What was so fascinating to me in that, especially in terms of the fact that most people think or have thought in the past that uh, the infant self is some kind of dis- uh, unified self that's joined to uh, the mother, that it's not functioning in any kind of separate way, is that when they tried pulling the arm of the uh, infant sucking its own thumb away from its mouth, the infant pulled toward its arm toward its mouth, mm-hmm. toward its mouth, because it was its own thumb in its mouth. When its Siamese twin thumb was in its mouth and they tried pulling it away, it reached after and followed, in other words, bodily followed mm-hmm. its thumb. So there's a, there's, 
there's obviously a tactile kinesthetic body that's alive and well in the body of, of infants. Mm-hmm. They know their own bodies, um, and it just seemed to me that that was a fantastically insightful um, experiment to run and uh, just just um, of critical importance, it seems yeah. to me also. So, so um, I think it's it's very nice to stay at these levels because then uh, we have um, in our culture a lot of confusions between what's the mind, what's the body, to what extent they overlap. You know, there are a lot of uh, uh, creating distinctions or talking about being in your head or being in your body. But um, this is uh, what you're talking about: is there is. Uh, uh, a mindful body that we have from birth on and there is a sense a knowledge and awareness that exists very deeply at a body level uh, so do you want to talk a little bit more about what that experience is uh, both maybe in terms of uh, your studies your thinking and your own experience as a dancer, but also as somebody who, when you do workshops uh, with people, you actually don't just talk, and you sometimes encourage them to move and experience their own movement. Yes, well, I think um, our usual sense that we have, idea, not sense, our usual idea that we have five and only five senses is at the basis of... uh, well, it just says a lot about the way in which we ignore proprioception and kinesthesia. We overlook, they are overlooked sensory modalities which are basic to our lives. If you look at psychology textbooks, uh, there's, there are reams written about vision and, and almost the same number of reams written about audition. There's some on smell and some on taste and some on tactility, but certainly nowhere to the point uh, where tactility should be highlighted since throughout our lives we are never out of touch with something. I mean, just the expression out of touch or in touch, yes. Yeah, I mean, we're always, we're, we're sitting on something, our feet are on the ground, our our backs are against a chair, we're, uh, we're, we have a fork in our mouths, I mean, we're always... We're never out of touch with something as long as we are alive. Mm-hmm. And in terms of kinesthesia, kinesthesia is very tied to tactility because uh, any kind of tactile explorations involve movement and their, our, our, um, our tactile sense is, is very, is, is tethered to, to kinesthesia. Um, they're, they're, um, when we dance, we're, we're always, grounded someplace um, even if momentarily we are airborne mm-hmm. so we come back down to earth uh, there's a line actually from a, a, a book by D.H. Lawrence that has always resonated for me and that was uh, he, he wrote uh, we ought to dance with rapture that we are alive and in the flesh and part of the living incarnate cosmos and then he went on to say, uh, he went on to say several things, but then he, he also, he also wrote that I am part of the earth, my feet go perfectly. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was just a beautifully, 
stated, just eloquent statement of 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 our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, so it's well, a at a at a at a broader level it's also that sense that um, we cannot exist nothing exists in isolation everything exists in relationship to uh, to something else yes yes right um in in a sensory sense in a tactile sense yes very 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 much so and in a movement sense too because we are we're we're never <laughs> we're never when i say we're never out of touch with something we're always our weight is always supported in some way. We're always supporting ourselves in some way. I mean, that's really very, very basic. We don't pay any attention to it normally at all. We take it for granted. But it's there in our experience. We'd be mm-hmm. very surprised if if there were nothing there. In fact, sometimes that happens, unfortunately, to people that they think that there's a chair underneath and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, um, going back, wait a minute, I was going to try to go back to your question, was relating uh, kinesthesia and proprioception to dance. There was a very strong, strong, obviously, training in kinesthetic awareness in the, in the, as it is in the training of any dancer. Um, and... My work has really been a just a broadening and a and a continuous elaboration of the meaningfulness of kinesthetic experience. Um, not that I have dwelt on that wholly and without um, without attention to anything else. Mm-hmm. This is beside the point of our discussion, but just I'm just going to mention this for example. But of well, in a way, this does have to do with tactility and kinesthesia because my my research uh, of the past two years, I was a distinguished fellow at the uh, Durham University in the UK uh, at their inaugural um, in their inauguration of the Institute of Advanced Studies, and the title of that um, inaugural year was The Legacy of Charles Darwin and I was writing on xenophobia and have been that has been the topic of my concern and in a way of course xenophobia is related to uh, movement because we keep our distance from strangers mm-hmm. um, but at any rate um, the moving body has been really the at the basis of almost everything I have done Mm-hmm. Um, it's influenced me uh, all the way along. So when you're alluding to this, for instance, in that study about uh, distance, and you've studied things um, like the development of language uh, related to uh, somatic concepts like inside, outside, uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Oh, yes, that's that's... Really, very, very interesting because um, actually, in a chapter of the corporeal turn and in, an interdisciplinary reader, this is a book that came out in um, in April of 2009, published in the UK, um, and it is a uh, it has uh, 
13 chapters are essays that I have written over the past uh, 26 years. And But it has two new chapters, and one of them is titled On the Challenge of Languaging Experience. And in that chapter, I used insides as an example, uh, in or inside, uh, the concept of in or inside. I first wrote about this actually in The Roots of Thinking because it came up with respect to um, writing about the origin and significance of Paleolithic cave art because hmm. everybody who writes about Paleolithic cave art never considers the fact that all of these people who went into caves to paint on them went inside. Mm. They never talk about the fact that that you go inside a cave and inside a cave is remarkably different from the outside world. Mm -hmm. So when you go inside, that must have been a formidable, it seems to me, experience to go inside a cave, even for someone today to go inside a cave. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable experience. So yeah. yeah, so I wanted to just, in a way, draw something that would be um, something that's both a similarity and a difference with uh, some form of um, psychoanalytic thinking, where you could say that, say, um, the cave or the basement of the house, uh, for some people, is a symbolic representation of um, inside the psyche or the innermost part. And what you're talking about is actually not a symbol, but something that is um, an earlier experience we have uh, that is actually our basis for the language itself. Yes, very much so, because um, as, I, um, uh, as I pointed out in, in both uh, The Primacy of Movement and in this chapter on the challenge of languaging, experience in the corporeal turn, I talked about the fact that I read a lot of books about um, the beginnings of language uh, written by psychologists who were uh, doing experimental work, um, Eve Clark, Lois Bloom, and a number of others. Um, and uh, it turned out that the first preposition that a child learns has to do with one thing being inside another or with putting one thing inside another so that at the beginnings of its language the first uh, there's a prepositional primacy of the word in mm -hmm. both a locative state and an act in other words the locative the state of something being inside another and the act of putting something inside another mm -hmm. and this comes before their uh, before their uh, understanding of or use of on and under. And mm. If you think about this, infants are put inside a crib. They are uh, put. They they have a nipple inside their mouth. Their mm -hmm. arms are put inside a sleeve. I mean, and uh, um, younger uh, young children. I mean, in terms of toilet training and all of that. That. They, they feel something is coming out from inside of them. Mm -hmm. They distinguish between inside and outside. So insides have a, have a, uh, in a sense, a kind of, of attraction. I mean, in terms of putting one thing inside another, but also in terms of what you're saying about the psyche, 
it seems to me it has also, like caves, a very mysterious kind of, uh, you don't know what you're going to find there. And from that point of view, it relates, it seems to me, to the human concept of the shadow. Mm-hmm. You want to keep your distance from. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, and actually, too, there was a, a wonderful description by Leonardo da Vinci who, um, who describes his experience of standing at the entrance of a cave and, and uh, he said he was suddenly struck by two things, fear and longing. Mm. He was afraid of the dark, ominous cavern and at the same time he was longing to see if inside there was something wonderful. Mm-hmm. So in a way, that's, does that resonate? With yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I think um, the the uh, the way in which language develops uh, and the the concepts that we have are are in in a, in this fundamental sense. I'm not saying every single word has has these kinds of historical origins. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, some of them have, resonate very deeply for us, very very deeply. Mm. So as we're coming to the end of this uh, conversation, um, is there something you would want to say to um, to conclude? Um, what I want to say, um, I think I would just reiterate what I said about um, a kinetic neuroscience coming prominently to the fore, something about that, because I think it's, I think movement is on the crest of being recognized. It still has a far way to go, but I think eventually it will come to the fore um, in not only in terms of, of organizations uh, um, trying to promote movement in terms of doing something ob- about obesity, but simply in terms of a uh, of a what I would call a feeling of, of aliveness mm-hmm. and um, realizing too the tremendous uh, conceptual <clears throat> the tremendous conceptual um, uh, what would you call it the the way in which our own movement is the source of fundamental concepts mm-hmm. and I think that that will eventually come to the fore because it's out there it's not fabricated it's not speculative but it's it's out there in in a lot of literature maybe between the lines and needs to be brought up to um, in the lines themselves but I think it definitely will uh, become apparent that in other words world moving and that's an important fact of life yeah yeah that uh, that it's there, but that um, we um, we become more conscious of it, we see it more. Yes, and we become aware of its qualitative dynamics and what what's what's what the meaningfulness of those qualitative dynamics mm-hmm. the way in which we relate to others, the way in which we, our own feelings, I mean in terms of the tactile kinesthetic and effective bodies are intertwined. We didn't get to talk about what I have written about as their dynamic congruency. Mm-hmm. But, but, but our feelings in an effective sense and our feelings in a kinetic sense are interlocked. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can feign emotions 
or that we can or that we can restrain them is evidence of the fact that we can put on the smile and we can restrain the smile because usually normally they come together mm-hmm. of a piece mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well thanks Maxine this recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Relate to others the way in which we, our own feelings, I mean, in terms of uh, the tactile kinesthetic and effective bodies are intertwined. We didn't get to talk about what I have written about as their dynamic congruency. Mm-hmm. But, but, but our feelings in an effective sense and our feelings in a kinetic sense are interlocked. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can feign emotions or that we can, or that we can restrain them is evidence of the fact that we can put on the smile and we can restrain the smile because usually normally they come together mm-hmm. of a piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks, Maxine. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.